All right, before we jump into the, uh, the passage uh, this morning, I'd like to talk to our young ones, our little ones, our kids, tell you all what the passage is going to be about, what the sermon is going to be about, okay? So I got a uh, true story for you. There are no kids over here, so you all have to watch the back of my head. Okay, uh, kids, uh, true story. There, uh, there was this science experiment uh, with two capuchin monkeys. You know, those are those itty-bitty, really super cute monkeys. Okay, so two monkeys in two cages next to each other. And what the scientists uh, did is the scientists gave the monkeys a simple test where they would hand them a pebble, and all they needed to do, the, the monkey just needed to hand the pebble back to the scientist, and the scientist would give them a slice of cucumber. So monkey A uh, gets the pebble, hands it back, gets a slice of cucumber. Monkey B sees that monkey A gets a slice of cucumber when he hands the pebble back. So scientist goes to monkey B, pebble. Monkey B gets a pebble, hands it back, gets a slice of cucumber. So on and on this goes like 25 times. It's going swimmingly. The monkeys are super happy. They love their, uh, they love their cucumber slices. And then, and then the scientist throws a monkey wrench into the experiment. Uh, monkey A hands over the pebble and gets the, uh, and gets the cucumber slice. Uh, monkey B hands over the pebble and gets a grape. And monkey B is like, I will be a monkey's uncle. Are you kidding me? A grape? And just like goes to town on his grape, loves his grape so much. Okay, so then the other monkey, other monkey sees, mo- this, this, you know, I think his monkey B gets the grape. Monkey A sees monkey B get a grape, gets the pebble, hands the pebble back, gets a cucumber slice. Looks at the cucumber slice, reaches back out through the cage, rears back and chunks it at the scientist. <laughs> and then holds out his hand. And then, and then he, scientist is busy with the other monkey doing the, doing the pebble thing. And, he, and while he's doing this, he sees, his, he sees the other monkey get another grape. And so he starts pounding on the table like this, like this, pounding and, and doing this. And then and the, so the scientist comes back, gives him a pebble, takes the pebble, gives it right back, expecting a grape and gets another cucumber slice. And he just, just starts shaking the cage and yelling. He's going bananas. Uh, Monkey A uh, was totally okay. He was doing great uh, until he started playing the comparison game. Uh, He was super happy with his cucumber slice until he looks over and he sees that his friend is getting something a little better for doing the same thing. Okay, true story. You can actually go watch this on the the internet. Um, Okay, kids, same with us. We do the same thing. Young ones, have y'all ever said anything that sounds like she's not going to practice, why do I have to? Anything like, why does he get to stay up late and I have to go to bed? Any, thank you, Henry. Thank you. We can be honest with each other. Uh, how about uh, they got a bigger scoop of ice cream. That, that scoop's bigger than the one I got. They've got more than I think that's... They got more than I got. Or how about, how about this one? Have y'all ever said, well, that's not fair. Okay, it's so easy, kids. It is so, 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 so easy to look around and think, well, they've got it better than I've got it. They got it better than I do. And guess who else? You're not alone. This is why we're doing this together. Guess, guess who else does that? Look at the people sitting next to you, kids. Yeah, everyone here. Look at the people across from you. Look at them over there. <laughs> they do, they do, do, we all do this thing of, in the church, we play the comparison game thing of, man, 
It is hard being a Christian. It just doesn't seem fair. It's hard being a Christian, and you look at the rest of the world, they seem like they're doing pretty good. Like, it seems like everything goes really well for people who aren't Christians. Like, like they have all the fun in life. And here's what Zechariah 1 is going to tell us. Our passage is going to tell us today that God knows everything that is going on in your life. He knows everything that is going on in everybody else's life. He knows it all, and he knows exactly what you need. And so your life, everything that is happening in your life is absolutely going according to plan. God knows what he's doing with you. He knows everything he's giving you. He knows everything he's not giving you. And he says he's doing it all for your good. That it is all about saving you and giving you what you really, 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 really need. Which is what? What do you, kids, last question. What do you really need? What do you need more than anything? We'll go with family. Whose family? Yes, Jesus. To be in God's family. That's what you need the most. That you need Jesus to save you from your sin. You need Jesus to save you from your death. And he does it by coming, living, and dying for you. And it's all about that. He is all about you, loving you, and saving you. Giving you more, actually giving you even more than you need and more than you deserve. More than you could ever imagine. Uh, one day he's going to give you himself. You have him right now in your heart. One day you're going to get to see him and hold him and play with him forever and ever and ever in heaven, in paradise. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. That's what we're going to talk about today in our series in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Just reminder to everyone, Israel has been taken into captivity, into Babylon for 70 years. And then Persia comes along, another world, you know, the New World Empire, and they defeat Babylon, and they free the Israelites. And they tell the Israelites, guys, you can go, you can live wherever you want in this kingdom, in this empire. Uh, go, you know, be free. Uh, you want to go back to Jerusalem? Great. Go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, do what you got to do. So some of the Jews do. They go back, they start rebuilding the temple, and they find trouble and opposition and suffering on every side, on every front. And that is why God then sends the prophet Zechariah to his people. So the text this morning, this is a familiar text if you've been here the past couple weeks. It is Zechariah 1, verses 7 to 17. This is the first vision of Zechariah. We've spent the last three Sundays on three figures in one verse. Verse 8. Because it's all there in verse 8. It's, all, it's got the major players, all the major players of the book of Zechariah right there. And this morning, Vision 1 comes together. Next Sunday, we're moving on. So uh, all comes together this morning. So remember in this vision, the watery deep is a symbol for all that threatens God's people. It's a symbol of chaos, death, judgment, evil, the devil himself. The myrtle trees, it's a symbol for paradise. And, and, and the dwelling place for God's people. So, so you're in the myrtle trees too. And it's God who dwells there in the midst of those trees. And then three, the rider on the red horse is a manifestation of the Son of God. All right, please stand for the reading of God's word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the deep, 
and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said to me, I'll show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So we've got all the major players in the book of Zechariah right here in verse 8, and now we get to make sense of the first vision itself. Uh, if you've been thinking this vision is crazy, it's about to get bananas. Uh, the man who is the angel of the Lord, okay, the, the rider on the red horse, he's standing there in the middle of the ocean, right? And his army, his army of riders have just returned from patrolling it says all of creation, all the earth. And they give the red rider this report in verse 11. They say this, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And at first blush, you know, you read that and you're like, well, that, that sounds great, right? Like, like John Lennon's vision was fulfilled, you know, 2,500 years before he imagined all the people living life in peace. But you got to remember, that's not what this is. Once you remember the watery deep... Uh, that the watery deep represents the evil powers that keep God's people from experiencing the promises, the blessings of God, uh, these blessings being fulfilled for them. And it is the sea that is at rest. The sea is calm. The sea is at peace. The sea is not churning. It's not being divided to make dry land for the trees. The depths are not being defeated. They're just there, just content. They're at peace. And before we run off into like the New Testament, say, well, wait, Jesus calming the sea, that was a good thing, right? Stay with this picture. Stay with this one here. Got to let, let this vision be its vision. In verse 15, God agrees that the nations are at ease, and that is not okay. Now, some historians object. Well, listen, it doesn't make sense that the sea represents Persia. If the sea is supposed to represent Persia, this, this little vision here doesn't make sense because Persia had lots and lots of war going on all the time. But that, that misses the point of the vision because the point is the relationship between the worldly powers and God's people. Not between the worldly powers and the worldly powers. No, it's between the worldly powers and God's people. And so yes, Persia has, quote, freed Israel but they are still under Persian domination. 
And meanwhile, Persia and the rest of the world seem to do whatever they want. They pose a serious threat to God's people. They are in the way of God, fulfilling his promises of a kingdom to his people. And the question is, what is God doing about it? God's enemies should not be at peace. God's people should be at peace. And if this sounds familiar, it should. Because this is also the church's present situation. It's, an, it's not that we are trying to rebuild the temple. It's not that we are try, trying to return to a geopolitical theocracy. But Israel, Israel as a whole, is a historical, it's a real historical picture of God's kingdom. And that does have everything to do with us. We know that this has to do with us because, here's the spoiler, these promises of the king, they are not fulfilled in the Old Testament. What they're crying out for is not fulfilled here in the Old Testament. And so, when we look around the world, you think globally, when we look around the world, you think North Korea and think Iran and think parts of the Middle East and think parts of Africa, uh, think parts of Asia and, and the West. Think of our culture. The world is doing great. Those who are opposed to God and his people, they've got the power, they've got whatever freedom they want, they've got the success. It's just very simply put, black. it's not the church. Not the church. And this temptation for us, as we read in that confession of faith, as we read in that uh, uh, confession of sin, that the, the temptation for us is to succumb to envy and to envy the world, which looks like, when you envy the world, it looks like resenting the world. And it looks like resenting each other and this thing we have, and it looks like resenting our lot in life. It looks like resenting ourselves. And, you know, envy looks like resenting God himself. There's a poem uh, by the 19th century French poet. Uh, he's an author, Victor Hugo, and it's called Envy and Avarice. So envy and, and greed. And what he does is he personifies envy and greed. So like two, two people walking down a road, and all of a sudden desire appears and gives envy and greed a chance to make a wish for whatever they want. They can have whatever they want. There are only two rules. Desire gives them two rules. One, whoever makes their wish first, you get your wish. Two, your neighbor gets double whatever you wish for. So envy and greed, they sit there frozen, wondering, what, what do I ask for? What do I ask for? And this is how the poem ends. Envy at last the silence broke, and smiling with malignant sneer upon her sister dear, who stood in expectation by, ever implicable and cruel spoke, I would be blinded of one eye. That's terrible! And that's envy! Are you going to give me double? Uh, take out one of my eyes. That is the heart of envy. The heart of envy is good for you means misery for me, and misery for you means good for me. Which is why each and every one of us instinctively feel good when we read about a celebrity scandal, a politician's disgrace, someone on the other side gets canceled, 
even we can it's even it's even that kind of uh, exhaling moment freedom when someone in our own circle crashes and burns and it's why gossip is seemingly so refreshing and we know we know admitting it makes us sound petty and small and weak and jealous envy is not it is not the right response to the state of the world the report of the patrolling angels gets gives this report and it begs the question in verse 12 how long how long O lord will you have no mercy on jerusalem and the cities of judah against which you have been angry these 70 years why is there a delay in bringing about the kingdom of heaven this past friday night we were trading uh, two nights ago trading uh, horror stories from middle school <laughs> I, just, I said i don't know why god did that to us i don't know why god did middle school to us and my uncle tim said but hey at least it wasn't exile in babylon I was like, oh my God, I have to write this. This is so perfect for Sunday. Because Israel really, really was, Israel really, really was in exile for 70 years in Babylon. God had brought Babylon down on Jerusalem as his judgment, his judgment on Israel for Israel breaking the law. And when I say law, I mean capital L, law. Breaking law. God, God's people broke God's law. The law is the Sinai covenant, that Mosaic covenant given at Sinai, which said uh, this covenant, this covenant was not a covenant of grace, not with the nation Israel. There was grace with each individual Israelite, but follow me here, with the nation of Israel, that was not a covenant of grace. It was this, it was a covenant of works. It was a works arrangement with the nation of Israel that said, listen, Israel, you work and you get the blessings of the covenant, which is you get the land of Canaan. You get to hold on to this land, and you're going to get to hold on to your king, and you're going to be the nation kingdom of Israel, God's theocratic nation on earth. You don't do the works of the law, then you will get the curses of the covenant. You will lose the land. You will go into exile. You will lose your king. And this is like, even if you're an obedient Israelite, even if you really believe in God and all his promises, the promise of a Messiah, of a Messiah even if you're someone as holy and awesome as like Daniel, ooh, you're with Israel, you get the curses too because the nation gets the curse. And you're no longer God's people. The 70 years of captivity was a punishment and it had to do with that 70 number. It had to do with the number of years that they totally failed to keep the Sabbath and worship God. Instead, what they kept doing was turning to false gods, turning to idols, to idol worship. And so the number 70 has this symbolic meaning. And the meaning is the 70 years is a sign of full punishment. So after, after 70 years... Their punishment is complete for breaking the law. That's what God said. I'm going to send you off for 70 years. That'll be the complete punishment. That means the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, it is a picture of hell where punishment for sin is paid. That means that Israel going into exile in Babylon, it is not like they're making sacrificial atonement for their sins. 
No, they're not making sacrificial atonement. They're paying. It's Israel being judged and condemned to pay for their sins. And it is just punishment for their sins. It's symbolically, Babylon is symbolically hell. So, so, if they've paid, why are things still so terrible? How long is the question? Jerusalem is still littered by ruins, still no walls for defense, barely any headway on rebuilding the temple, and the work keeps getting interrupted, and it keeps getting delayed by opposition. The land is unproductive. There is no self-rule. There is no Israel nation. There is no Davidic king on the throne. There is no throne. Spoiler is, they do not get what they're asking. They don't get the response that they want to get. As in, they are not going to return to the might of Israel under David and Solomon. So we say, yes, Israel paid their dues in Babylon, but God brings them back to the land totally, totally by grace. He makes them a nation again that is totally, totally by grace. They haven't done anything to deserve it. All they've done is paid their debt. But now, so Israel, sorry, God brings Israel back again under a works arrangement again, that is, you want the blessing? You, hey, okay, you want the blessings? Get to work. Get to work, which sounds, it, we hear that and it's like, that sounds so awful and so discouraging to these people who are already so broken. They're already so poor and that, that yes, that is the point. It's supposed to be discouraging. The Mosaic law was given to show Israel their inability to obtain God's ultimate blessings of a kingdom, their ultimate blessings of heaven through law-keeping. It was not given to encourage them to think, we can do this, we can obtain the inheritance of eternal glory by keeping the law. That is not what they're supposed to be thinking. Now, some object to this and say, well, no, that's going to be really confusing to Israel because they're going to be confused into thinking, it's going to make them think, that they actually could merit eternal life by keeping the law. That is true. Some people do end up doing that. The Pharisees end up doing that, of thinking, yeah, we can do this by keeping the law. Some do make that mistake, but the purpose is the exact opposite. This is what Paul keeps trying to tell everybody. The whole reason God gave Israel the law is in order to shut up Israel under sin and show them that they cannot do it. And it therefore leads them to the one who can. They need a savior. The 70-year exile, it is what we would call typological, symbolic payment for sin. But it's not real payment. It's not real payment. It's a sign. It is a picture. The real hell, it is eternal. It is unending. It is eternal punishment for sin to be paid for forever. There is no getting out of hell. There is no end to the real hell. So these Jews who are coming out of symbolic hell, coming out of exile, coming out of Babylon, they still need a savior. Someone has to actually keep the law perfectly to merit God's blessings. Someone has to then make actual payment for sin and pay the punishment. Someone has to actually suffer the punishment of hell for them 
for us. And that is, we are just totally jumping ahead, that is the miracle of the cross. That cursed cross is a miracle of salvation to us. That the eternal wrath of God against us was compressed, miraculously compressed into the hours of Jesus' once-for-all sufferings on the cross. It's all the more amazing. It is all the more awesome to remember who is asking this question in the vision. The how long in verse 12. It says this. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long? It is the rider on the red horse who sees his people suffering in their sin and their misery and any intercedes to God the Father on their behalf. The people of God may not get the response that they want, but they're going to get the response that they really need. And the one who asks the question knows what it will take to answer, and he's going to be the one who answers. The red rider intercedes for us by calling out to the Father to send him to earth knowing what he's going to do. And then what the red rider does is he turns to Zechariah with his answer to go tell the people that he is coming. And so Zechariah becomes an Old Testament John the Baptist. In the so what for us, so the, the, okay, so what? It's that this promise, it is still being fulfilled in our time, in our day right now. And it's being fulfilled through the preaching of the gospel. And while we're doing that, while we're doing what we're doing right now, we're also crying out, how long? How long am I going to be sad? How long am I going to go to bed sad? How long am I, I going to wake up sad? How long am I going to be stre- so stressed and so anxious that I don't ever actually get to bed? And this is not a self-shaming exercise of, of we need to ask this question of how long. It's not a, ooh, I am too blessed to be stressed. Uh, look at all that God has given me. How can I be sad? No. It's a genuine how long. But it's not, it's not a how dare you God. It's an acknowledgement that the church is always going to be lamenting her situation. As in, here's some real examples of application. We should not ever, ever expect political dominion. The church is not about influencing, transforming, or winning the culture. We are never not going to be crying out how long? There is no golden age of the church, and not until Jesus comes back. We cry out how long, and the answer is the return of Jesus. And there are lots of people, there are lots of people uh, in the church, uh, uh, there are lots of people outside the church who don't like that, so they never come into the church. There are lots of people in the church who don't like that, and they try to rail against it and change it. Uh, and I get that. 
because this is not my favorite. Like this is, yeah, this is unpopular, but it's not, it is not pessimistic and it is also not Gnostic because what we are about are saving people spiritually and physically forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. We may not like the way this works, but it is God's work. One old, one old Testament commentator put it this way to this point. What has been in the eyes of heaven, a triumphant working of the Spirit of Christ, affecting the salvation of all God's elect in every nation and every generation without fail, a sovereign fulfilling of the good pleasure of God's will to the praise of his grace, this is not to be dismissed. As in we really, we, we cannot, we should not despise the work of the Holy Spirit. We do not want to become impatient. Even as we cry out, how long? We can't demand that Jesus fulfill his promises of the kingdom before he said he would. We can't deny, in our, in our uh, resorting to envy, we cannot deny the work that Jesus is doing by the power of his Holy Spirit. That is to succumb to desire for worldly power. And what we want is not worldly power. We want God's power. This is how this has worked out. Here's another example. In the British Museum in London, there's an ancient Near Eastern artifact from Persia called the Cyrus Cylinder. This is a really cool baked clay cylinder. And it's got a record of Cyrus conquering Babylon and becoming the dominant world power. In the cylinder, Cyrus says some really nice things about himself. He says this, I am Cyrus, king of the universe, the great king, the powerful king, king of Babylon, king of Sumer, and Akkad, king of the four quarters of the world. And then in the Bible, in the Bible, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus says this. Uh, it's recorded that Cyrus says, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. And some hear that, and they wonder... They think, well, it sounds like Cyrus converted to Judaism. It sounds like he became a believer. Except Cyrus says the same stuff about dozens of other deities. Uh, you keep reading on the Cyrus cylinder, it says this. Marduk, the great lord, a protector of his people, beheld with pleasure Cyrus's good deeds, delivered into Cyrus's hands the Babylonian king who did not worship Marduk. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Baal and Nebo for a long life for me, and may they recommend me to Marduk. Cyrus is doing uh, what he did with all the nations he conquered. He's unifying his empire. He's unifying his, his kingdom, and he's keeping the people happy. And he's, he's doing his best to keep any gods, especially any gods who might have some really crazy, awesome, uh, abnormal power, uh, he's keeping them happy too, so that it goes well for Cyrus and Persia. Historians say that Persia ruled with a velvet glove. And this is why. Another pastor put it brilliantly. He said, Cyrus thinks that Israel is part of his story. What the Bible tells us is that Cyrus the Great 
is part of Israel's story. He's a part of our story. In my uh, zeal to make a small historical point in uh, our first week in Zechariah 1, I misspoke, which history majors really don't like doing. Um, I said that Darius... Uh, uh, in Zechariah 1, that the Darius that Zechariah is talking about in verse 1 of chapter 1, verse 7 of chapter 7, it says, in the second year of Darius, I said that that Darius is Cyrus. Okay, that's wrong, actually. But, but Cyrus was also known as Darius the Mede. And there's some just contention there, and that's a whole other story, but that's how you make sense of, uh, like, you read, you read about him in Daniel, and the historical point I was trying to make corrects a small translation problem in uh, Daniel 6.28 that's translated, this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and, and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That should simply be translated to during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, so Darius, Darius was uh, a Babylonian title that Cyrus took on himself. So Cyrus the Great was also Darius the Mede. Our Darius in Zechariah is Darius the Great. He's the nephew of Darius the Mede, a.k.a. Cyrus. Okay, so now one of the great achievements, one of the great achievements of Darius the Great was his super extensive road system all throughout that stretched it stretched 1700 miles across his empire and a caravan a caravan could travel across the empire in 90 days which was amazing like that's amazing even more amazing is one of Darius's soldiers could travel across the empire in a week one week, because they had all these outposts and all these stables with fresh horses every 20 to 30 miles along this stretch of road that one rider could ride 240 miles in a day, getting a fresh horse every 20 to 30 miles. And the point was, these riders were called the eyes and ears of Persia. So Darius knew you could not mount a rebellion against him. He'd hear about it immediately and move against you. So it kept, it kept this awesome security uh, throughout the, the kingdom. Okay, now think about this vision. Go back, to the, go back to Zechariah's vision. The Jews hearing this vision, they would get the point immediately. God is fully aware of those who are in rebellion against him. Those who threaten his people, he knows it. It is a reminder that God has jurisdiction over the deep. He has total authority over the Persians, Darius, over the whole world. And anything that would endanger the fulfillment of his plan for his people, he knows it. The one who has universal authority, who is king over all of creation, sees, hears, knows all, and he is protecting his people, and his plan cannot be thwarted. Uh, C.S. Lewis's fifth book in the Chronicles of Narnia. Anyone know what it is off the top of their head? Right. You got it. That's it. Somebody said it. Nobody said it. Uh, the horse and his boy. Um, the horse and his boy. And you start reading this book. I remember reading this as a kid, and I started reading it. I read all the other ones up to this. I start reading them like, wait, this is the wrong book. This is the wrong book. And I kept going back. I'm like, no, this is Chronicles of Narnia. I kept reading, kept reading. Like, this is the wrong book. This doesn't have anything to do with Narnia. 
And then I read it again, maybe like two years ago or something, and I had that same feeling. You start reading it, you're like, this is not having anything to do with what we've been talking about. Okay, now I'm not giving away the end here. I'm giving away the end. But at the end, really, I'm not giving the end. I'm not at the end, though. After meeting King Loon of Archenland and warning him of the impending Calamine invasion, Shasta, so you're already lost. Shasta, the main character, he gets lost in a fog, okay? Uh, he gets lost in a fog, and he's separated from the Archenlanders. Like, this, this little boy who's just had disaster after disaster, trouble after tr- trouble, and here he is again. He's lost from everybody, and while walking in the fog, he senses a mysterious presence nearby. And he starts a conversation. This thing starts talking to him, and he starts a conversation with this unknown being, and this thing gets him talking, and Shasta retells all his misfortunes, including twice being chased by lions. And you read this book, and you think, this is not the right story. It's not the Narnia story until the end. And it all comes together. And his companion turns out to be Aslan, uh, the lion, uh, who is the Christ figure of Narnia. And he says this. He says this to Shasta. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach the king loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. I have always been with you. And, and really, then the story gets crazy. I promise you I have not ruined the horse and his boy. Go read that book. Uh, this story that we're in, it just, like, this is not the right story. This is not it. Like, I'm in the wrong story. My life, that's the wrong story. I don't get it. One day, you will. It will all make sense. It will all come together. And it will be more glorious than you could ever imagine. And how you can know that right now is by looking back. When Jesus was crucified, it looked like the religious leaders were directing Jesus' steps. It looked like the Romans were in total control, crucifying Jesus. And what the Bible tells us is this. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In the greatest persecution and suffering in all of history, in the crucifixion and death of Jesus, God showed himself to be supremely faithful to his promises. That at the cross, more than anywhere else, we see that out of extreme evil, persecution, and suffering, our God brings salvation. And he is with us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you uh, for the wonders of your grace and the wonders of your love and the wonders of your work, which we see most supremely in Jesus Christ. Father, as we uh, continue to lift up your name and praise here this morning and as we go out today and as we wake up and go about tomorrow, Lord, bless us to cry out how long in faith and with hope, knowing that you are coming for us. And knowing that that's true, because we know that you already have come for us.
and knowing that we have you right now in Christ our Lord. Our salvation, it is secure. Help us to hold on to that. Help us to hold that out to each other with love and grace as together we cry out how long. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.